Hey everyone, Andrew here. My apologies for the delay in producing this episode. I moved a few months ago and I started a cardiology fellowship and doing that has taken up a lot of my time and put me behind schedule on things that I want to do. So I have a lot of ideas for new episodes and new material that I want to put forward and so I'm going to try to catch up by the end of the year. So my apologies there. Today, I have a really good discussion with Dr. Eugene Yang. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Washington and a cardiologist here. He helps uh, review the guidelines um, for hypertension that were published in 2017 from the ACC and AHA. The major headline from those guidelines that came out in the news was how the target blood pressure changed from 140 over 90 to 130 over 80. Um, and when you look at the guidelines, it's actually a bit more nuanced than that. And there are specific patient populations who really should be treated with this, with a goal of 130 over 80, whereas there are some others for whom maybe medication is not indicated for and a target of 140 over 90 may be acceptable. So I talked with Dr. Eugene Yang uh, about some of those nuances and those details there. And last thing before we start, over the next few months, I will be recording heart sounds for tutorials on cardiac auscultation with the gracious support of Think Labs, the creators of a digital stethoscope. The Think Labs One digital stethoscope has the best in-class sound quality and amplification, allowing for improved auscultation of hard-to-hear heart sounds. You can use promo code APCARDIO19 now for $50 off your purchase at store.thinklabs.com. I've been using it for a couple of months, and I think it's a great device, and I'm really enjoying it. So I think you'll enjoy that material when I have it available in the new year. So without further ado, let's get started with today's episode. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. All right, thank you for meeting with me today. Actually, I'm here with uh, Dr. Yang. Can I just have you say your name and your title for the audience? Sure. Uh, my name is Eugene Yang, and I'm a professor of medicine here at University of Washington in the Division of Cardiology. You were uh, part of the uh, committee to help write the guidelines for the uh, ACCAHA uh, hypertension guidelines that were published in 2017. Well, yeah, right? so I was involved in reviewing the guidelines um, uh, for the ACC and AHA in 2017, and I'm also the chair of the hypertension working group for the C Cardiovascular Prevention Council for the ACC. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. So I want to talk to you today about um, about hypertension. I remember when those guidelines came out in 2017, you know, I was uh, in the middle of my residency. And really the kind of takeaway was of, from those guidelines and what people were talking about was that the target had shifted. The goalpost moved from 140 over 90 to 130 over 80. And as I dug into those guidelines more and read them more, I came to understand that that discussion is a bit more nuanced. And so I prepared a couple of cases to discuss that I think will highlight some of those nuances and we can discuss how those apply. Sure. So first we'll have uh, Mrs. Jackson. She's a 42-year-old woman. She's uh, African-American. She has no active medical issues. And recently she went to a company screening uh, health fair and her blood pressure was noted to be 138 over 84. So the health fair nurse told her that she had stage one hypertension and she said she should go see a doctor. So she hasn't seen a doctor in years and she comes to your clinic. Um, when you see her, the notable vital signs is that her BMI is, one, is 32, and then on repeat measure, her blood pressure is 136 over 80. Um, of note, when you calculate her ASCVD risk score, 
it's 2.3% at 10 years and 27% for lifetime. Uh, so for this patient, my first question for you is, what's the preferred way or the best way to confirm the diagnosis of stage one hypertension? Yeah, so I think there are a variety of recommendations on how to uh, correctly diagnose it. So um, some of the tools that we have in the outpatient setting are to do home blood pressure uh, measurements. Um, a second way that's a little bit more uh, complicated and a little bit more labor intensive uh, is to do 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring where we provide the patient with a device to measure their blood pressure every 20 to 30 minutes over a 24-hour period and then record those measurements to make some decisions about whether the blood pressures are high enough to justify initiation of treatment. Uh, and then the third way is to have several um, office measurements that are consistently above specific thresholds, which we can talk about, that also can be used as a way to determine whether somebody needs initiation of blood pressure measurement. So typically, depending upon different sets of guidelines, you may either have two or three um, office-based measurements that are above specific thresholds uh, that may um, indicate the patient has hypertension uh, that will require pharmacological treatment. Gotcha. Okay. Um, what happens most for you in your clinical practice of these op of those options? Yeah, so um, I think we probably rely most on home blood pressure measurements because it is le uh, less expensive um, to purchase a new uh, blood pressure machine such as um, one that I recommend and uh, manufacturers whose machines are used in clinical trials costs about $50. Um, and so there are specific recommendations from the AHA ACC guidelines on the proper technique, which I tried to educate patients on by demonstrating to them the proper technique in the office, uh, and then collecting that information usually over the span of four to six weeks and either having the patients send me the blood pressures um, uh, through our electronic health portal or from the patients returning to the office to review the blood pressures uh, is probably the most common way that I, I monitor the patient's blood pressures. And then obviously if they have repeated office visits even prior to my own uh, that indicate elevated blood pressures, in some cases that can be another way to establish a diagnosis. But in most cases, I am more um, interested in collecting my own data because some of the pitfalls of office measurements are that they're not repeated a second time after they are initially elevated. Uh, and frequently, um, patients' second blood pressure when they're repeated in the office may be substantially lower. Mm -hmm. So as an example, there was a study that came out of Metro West in Cleveland, Ohio, and they did a study where the patient's blood pressures were above the 140 over 90 threshold. So they were given an alert in the electronic health record to repeat the blood pressure measurement. And when they did that, the average systolic blood pressure was eight millimeters lower on the second measurement than the first measurement. Hmm. So that has a lot of clinical implications because if they just relied on the first measurement, then they might have been overtreated with medication because a lot of times patients have this alerting response you know, called white coat hypertension or white coat effect in those individuals who already have an underlying diagnosis of hypertension. And so we may be artificially or um, potentially over-treating those patients when they, in fact, don't have true hypertension. Sure, gotcha. Now, with um, uh, when you're teaching them like the proper technique, uh, are these patients, are you getting them like an automated blood pressure cuff or are you teaching them to do manual blood pressure cuffs? Right, so definitely not teaching them to do manual blood pressure measurements. So in fact, in um, clinics, it is not recommended to do manual blood pressure measurements by your staff 
such as your nurses and MAs, because of inconsistencies in accurately measuring them with manual recordings. Uh, so in the office, even when they're collected by the staff, they do um, uh, measurements with an automated uh, cuff. Um, mm. And so typically what I do is I actually do repeat it myself manually um, to confirm their blood pressure readings. But in general, it's recommended to do uh, readings using typically oscillometric devices. Um, and so typically I will have patients purchase one of those devices an automated arm cuff um, and use that as a way to take reliable measurements at home. Gotcha. I'm wondering if like Karatkov is just like rolling over in his grave about like the uh, the use of the oscillometer, you know, devices. Yeah, I mean, that's a more complicated question because these oscillometric devices definitely are not actually measuring the blood pressure. And so there are lots of complicated algorithms that are used with these devices to convert the signal that's generated in sort of a digital format into a actual pressure recording. Uh -huh. And so there are definitely some challenges to put the accuracy of some of these devices, but you know, to receive international certification for the devices, um, the requirements are based on comparing the uh, measurements recorded by these devices to manual uh, sphingomanometry um, recordings. And if they don't um, maintain um, a recording that's within a certain threshold, then they're not certified. So you, you gotcha. can you can sort of rely on the fact that there are international certification standards that require that the the automated devices are within usually seven or eight millimeters of uh, of a manual reading. I see. Okay. Now let's get back to our case. So mm -hmm. so you see her. Let's say you get her. You know her home based uh, blood pressure monitoring. And you confirm that she indeed, you know, has stage one hypertension. Her blood pressures are, you know, pretty consistent to this 136 over 80 from what she had. So the next question is, should she be started on an anti-hypertensive medic medication? Yeah, so I think this is a really good case that um, highlights some of the um, uh, misunderstandings uh, from the, from the uh, updated guidelines. So the first thing is that her ASCVD risk is less than 10%. So when your ASCVD risk is less than 10%, the guidelines recognize that this patient is not in a high-risk category where aggressive initiation of antihypertensive therapy is likely to be beneficial. Hmm. And because her risk is so low, the threshold for initiation of treatment is still 140 over 90. Hmm. And so because her readings in the office are below that 140 over 90 threshold, the recommendation is to focus on lifestyle changes. So as you hmm. pointed out, she's obese, her BMI is 32. Um, so the first step is really to focus on lifestyle intervention. So working on weight reduction, exercise, um, uh, reducing her salt intake. And so I sort of call it the rule of fives, that there are certain interventions can result in up to five millimeter reduction of systolic blood pressure. So mm -hmm. for example, losing five kilograms of weight or about 11 pounds can translate into up to a five millimeter reduction in systolic blood pressure. Reducing your sodium intake by a thousand milligrams from your baseline intake can also help lower your systolic blood pressure by up to five points. Hmm. And exercising 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity aerobic exercise can also have a potential effect of lowering your systolic blood pressure by up to five points. So for a patient like this, the first intervention is lifestyle behavioral changes, and then giving the patient three to six months to start working on these interventions, and then also having her check blood pressures at home, as we talked about, mm -hmm. 
to see whether there's any improvement um, with these um, specific interventions. So in this case, the focus is not on pharmacologic therapy because her risk is less than 10%. The focus is on behavioral and lifestyle intervention. Gotcha. And I thought that was an interesting uh, change or addition to the to the guidelines here is this incorporation of the pooled cohort equation, the, the ASCBD risk score. Um, if I'm correct, I don't think that was discussed much in the, uh, what were the prior guidelines? The JNC 7? 7 guidelines. JNC 7 guidelines. Um, uh, and so now there's this additional focus on what is their risk and the patients for high risk should be starting on medication where those with low risk, you know, we focus more on lifestyle modifications. Exactly. So, you know, her lifetime risk is elevated, right? So it's 27%. So um, those things can be modified by um, making lifestyle changes, which would then affect her systolic blood pressure, probably improve her lipid profile, all of which would then impact her long-term risk of cardiovascular events. So that's why I think the the focus in these low-risk patients is on sort of long-term strategies of how they can optimize the risk so that lifetime risk is significantly lower um, than where their starting point is. Gotcha. Okay. So let's make a slight modification to the uh, to the case. So you've seen her. She hasn't seen a physician in a while. So let's say you check a A1C on her and it comes back at 6.9%. So, you know, you start on metformin. Uh, you recalculate her ASCBD risk score and her 10-year risk is now 5.4%. Um, and same thing, she still has stage 1 hypertension. So we'll revisit the same question. Now, now knowing that she is a diabetic and this slightly more elevated 10-year ASCBD risk, should she now be started on a... Uh, on an antihypertensive medication. Uh, right, so she now fits in a different category. So in the updated guidelines from 2017, um, the sort of 10-year ASCVD risk sort of gets thrown out the window, so to speak, because she has a specific disease state where the risk, long-term risk, is considered much higher. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result, the recommendation from the U.S. guidelines is that the target uh, for treatment is really to get her blood pressure below 130 over 80 just because she has a diagnosis of diabetes. Hmm. So in her case, I mean, I think you could still argue that she could focus on lifestyle intervention. So mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean you have to immediately initiate antihypertensive therapy because, you know, she's got an, a BMI of 32. So all the things that we talked about previously um, can be applied here. Now, would the guidelines say that perhaps you should be more aggressive and initiate treatment? Yes, but if we look at the case sort of from a sort of a broader perspective, mm -hmm. you know, she's not that far off from being below that target of 130 over 80. Sure. So this becomes sort of a shared decision-making discussion that if we were to go strictly based on the guidelines, then mm -hmm. the recommendation would be to initiate antihypertensive therapy. But I tend to give patients options because patients most are reluctant to take medication. So yeah. I will typically give patients a window of three to six months to try to make lifestyle adjustments, which might allow the blood pressure to come below that threshold, where then she wouldn't necessarily need to be treated with medication. Um, so in this case, um, I think the correct answer would be that she should be treated, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't give the patient the option of trying lifestyle changes first mm -hmm. to see if that would bring the blood pressure down into a, a target that's below that, that specific treatment threshold. Gotcha. I think that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, like for playing by the book and by the guidelines, you know, taking your board exam, probably this patient should be started on antihypertensive mm -hmm. medication. 
However, in, in a real life scenario, there is, you know, probably some time, you know, six months isn't going to make a big difference in Correct. this patient. Mm -hmm. And if she's motivated and can make those lifestyle changes, you know, lose some weight, you know, say her diabetes becomes diet controlled now at that point, drops below 6.5. Mm -hmm. She manages to lose the five kilograms, like you said. Now her blood pressure is, you know, better, you know, 130 over 75 sort of thing. Then, you know, we've, you know, haven't started our medication, whereas some of these antihypertensives, they get started and then you're kind of on it for life. Exactly. So I think that's what causes a lot of patients to be hesitant about treatment is because when we have these discussions, frequently the question is, you know, am I going to have to be on this forever? And okay. frequently our answers are, you're, you are going to be on these medications for an indefinite period of time. Now, if things change and your blood pressures come down and you're getting very low readings, then there can certainly be some de-escalation of treatment. Uh, but that tends to be something we don't do as aggressively as we do with in, with initiation of treatment. So our de-escalation of treatment tends to be something we do less than actually starting medications and just keeping them on them without sort of thinking about whether it makes sense to try to reduce their medication burden. Um, so that's why it is sort of a big deal. And since she's only 42, we're talking about potentially committing her to many decades of medication. Mm -hmm. So in her case, I think if she were seeing me, I would try to focus on these lifestyle changes because she's young so that she doesn't need to start taking medications at such a young age. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, another thing that we kind of uh, that you mentioned, I want to just revisit a little bit is that um, her calculated ASCBD risk is minimally elevated, like 5.4%. Um, but then there's this idea that she has a, a uh, specific disease she has diabetes and that immediately puts her into a high risk category um which i think is a little is one of the maybe the fallbacks of the pool cohort equation is that you know you put in diabetes you know there's a spot to like check there but it does not automatically boost your patient's risk profile into that high risk category when you are you know for a patient like this she's young mm -hmm. mm. yeah so i mean i think that's why the clinical use of these guidelines can be confusing to in particular patient uh, physicians uh, or providers in primary care where they use the equation they see that these that the score is not above a 10% threshold or whatever yeah. uh, and then they don't they don't then understand that well the patient has a comorbidity where the threshold is or target is already defined irrespective of what that 10-year yeah. risk calculator um, indicates so uh, and even for patients it can be confusing so um, you know, I think that that's why, you know, for most people in clinical practice, it is very hard to incorporate these guidelines um, because of all these little nuances about specific disease states where the recommendations are irrespective of what that tenure risk is. So another example for like the lipid guidelines is that you have a patient whose LDL is 192 where there's a suspicion that they have some sort of familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh -huh. But if you plug in their 10-year risk, you know, it might come back 1% because they're 38 years old or 42 sure. years old or 42 years old. Um, and so they, they use that still um, because they don't acknowledge or have not recognized that a very high LDL is something that you should just treat in most cases because it's a genetic disorder with significantly elevated risk of premature atherosclerosis. Sure. Now, getting back to our getting back to our case, let's say, you know, we give her the three or six months to try to make some lifestyle changes, and really there hasn't been a budge. You know, A1C is still the same, still metformin. 
and uh, her weight's been the same. Blood pressure hasn't changed. So now we're probably to the point where we would probably want to start some antihypertensive medication. And what would be the preferred agent that you would start with? There's, I think, a lot of varying opinions that could go this way for this case. Yeah, so I think that um, this, this is uh, a, an example of a lack of um, agreement on what treatment is necessarily the most appropriate for this patient. So we have several factors to consider. One is she has diabetes. So some would argue that using an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker may be uh, renal protective, and therefore that should be the first-line treatment for a diabetic patient. We don't know what her urine uh, creatinine or urine uh, protein levels look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, so some would argue that that would be the first-line treatment. On the other hand, there are differences in um, ethnic sensitivities to different classes of medications, and we know that uh, blacks um, tend to be more salt sensitive, and so they tend to respond better to calcium channel blockers and diuretics. Um, so in the U.S. guidelines, there's no clear preference of classes of drugs, whereas other guidelines do have specific class recommendations. Um, so in her case, I think um, uh, if she were to see me, um, a, a lot of it is based on my own sort of assessment of what their dietary habits are, you know, are the eating a lot of sodium in their diet, where then maybe a, a diuretic might be more beneficial. Um, but in her case, probably I would choose hydrochlorothiazide um, or chlorothaladone. Uh, you know, the calcium channel blockers cause, the uh, dihydropyridines cause lower extremity edema. It's more common in women. It is a dose-dependent effect of the medication. Uh, you know, the debate over hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothaladone uh, is an interesting one. I mean, chlorthalidone is clearly the, the treatment that was shown to be beneficial in many of the large clinical trials, sure. such as the ALL-HAT trial, the SHEP trial, the systolic hypertension in elderly people. So many of the, of the large randomized clinical trials that showed benefit to blood pressure lowering use chlorthalidone, and in fact, there really aren't any large studies with hydrochlorothiazide. So if you're a purist based on the clinical trial data, then chlorothaladone is the one that's been shown to be beneficial. Mm-hmm. However, the reality is that in clinical practice, chlorothaladone's availability is definitely better, but it's not as cheap as hydrochlorothiazide. So mm-hmm. the availability of the drug is definitely sometimes not quite as convenient. And secondly, um, you know, the metabolic effects of chlorothaladone in terms of its um, um, up impact on hypokalemia or hyponatremia or increasing glucose levels is definitely well known. And one of the reasons why those in clinical practice um, probably have been hesitant to use it is because of these metabolic effects. Um, Mm. So in general, I think I tend to use hydrochlorothiazide um, more than chlorothaladone um, because it's tolerated better from a metabolic standpoint. Uh, And you you can easily titrate the, the medication to high doses. So typically I will max out the dosage of the medication at 50 milligrams a day, but mm-hmm. then you start getting more issues with hypokalemia and hyponatremia, obviously, like you do sure. with chlorothalidone. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, another question. So with her her history of diabetes and elevated risk, um, elevated ASCVD risk, should she be placed on a statin or would you do additional risk score modification like a, a coronary, uh, like a coronary uh, calcium score? Um, so that's a good question. So again, the just like the hypertension guidelines, you know, the uh, the lipid guidelines that came out last year 
um, uh, really do not now, um, uh, they, I mean, basically the guidelines recommend that anybody with diabetes who's between the age of 40 to 75 should be on at least moderate intensity statin therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and so they no longer incorporate a 10-year risk to make a decision about intensity of treatment. They basically just say if you're 40 to 75 and you have diabetes, unless your LDL cholesterol level is below 70, mm -hmm. then you should be taking a statin, at least moderate intensity. So you're basically- getting, You're getting a torvastatin, 20 milligrams, basically. You're gonna get ideally 20, 20 milligrams of atorvastatin, which would be moderate intensity right. treatment, right? Yeah. So in the guidelines, the recommendation would be to start her on a moderate intensity statin with the objective of achieving at least a 30 to 50% reduction in their LDL cholesterol mm -hmm. from baseline. Um, so where the calcium score becomes potentially beneficial is in a case where there is some reluctance of the patient to initiate treatment. Um, so when there is um, some clinical indecision, the guidelines now say that if you're in the, so in her case, she's at 5.4%. So if you are in the borderline risk of five to seven and a half percent or your intermediate risk, which is defined as 7.5 to 19.9%, that's a situation where when there's some indecision about initiation of treatment where calcium scoring can be beneficial. Now, one of the pitfalls, though, is that the calcium scoring in terms of its prognostic value is less accurate in three specific populations. So one is diabetic patients. Mm -hmm. Two is if you have a history of premature coronary artery disease. Okay. Or three, if you actively smoke. Mm -hmm. So in those three situations, um, a calcium score of zero may not necessarily be a reassuring finding in terms of if it's prognostic value. And since she has diabetes, if she had a calcium score of zero, it still wouldn't necessarily um, tell us that we shouldn't be more aggressive. Where it's more useful is that if it comes back 300 or 400, then the patients typically have um, greater willingness to initiate treatment. Sure. So it becomes a harder conversation if the score is zero, but yet we have to um, um, explain to patients that it may not be accurate that your risk is still very low because of your underlying diabetes condition. I follow. Very interesting. Okay, we could probably go off on a whole tangent about those, but we'll uh, we'll we'll avoid that whole discussion. Mm -hmm. So good to know. Um, let's move to our second case. Okay. So, Mr. Anderson, he's a 68-year-old gentleman. He has a history of uh, uh, of colon cancer. And he had uh, status post a uh, surgical resection about two years ago with new angiovic chemotherapy. So he's currently in remission. He has hyperlipidemia, and he's coming in. He has a blood pressure of 146 over 92. And ambulatory blood pressure monitoring confirms this diagnosis. His BMI is 26. So question, what should his goal blood pressure target be? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that because he's 68 years old and he's a man, um, the likelihood that his 10-year uh, um, ASCVD risk is above 10% is pretty high. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, the blood pressure um, target for somebody with um, an ASCVD risk over 10% should be less than 130 over 80 um, for um, treatment, unlike the first case where the risk was less than 10%, where the threshold for initiation of treatment was less than 140 over 90. Mm -hmm. So his target should be less than 130 over 80 based on the fact that his his 10-year ASCVD risk is 
undoubtedly going to be over that 10% threshold. Gotcha. Okay. So when we're considering about um, treatments for, uh, for his hypertension, I think about this patient, he's got colon cancer. Currently he's doing well, he's in remission. But should we be considering about his life expectancy when we're talking about uh, uh, treatments for hypertension, thinking about this is kind of a long-term risk reduction, and some of our patients maybe don't have a life expectancy of 10 years or more? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think that is at least established in the guidelines, right? So if you look at the guidelines for the elderly patients, which is defined as individuals over the age of 65, in the new guidelines, the recommendation is a target blood pressure of less than 130 over 80, mm-hmm. but they also have a second sort of bullet point in the guidelines that specifically talks about sort of these issues about frailty, are they independently living, do they have dementia, um, what is their life expectancy? So in that situation, the recommendation is sort of the shared decision-making process to determine those factors. So you know, if this patient had severe dementia, um, I don't think anybody would argue that, you know, what is the point of even sure. aggressively treating blood pressure at all? Yeah. Uh, in this case, you know, you know, he's two years out from uh, remission, um, you know, and, you know, part of it would be talking to the oncologist to get some perspective, like what is his life expectancy based on his treatment and his current cancer status? That could help give you some insights into whether you should consider being very aggressive with this treatment strategy or not. So Mm -hmm. again, the guidelines do give you the opportunity to consider these other factors um, to make those types of decisions uh, about uh, intensity of treatment and what those targets are. Um, There's some new interesting ideas about how to aggressively treat blood pressure. So a paper came out earlier this year from a European group that suggested frailty is a way to assess aggressiveness of treatment. And so Hmm. if somebody is very independently living and has no requirements for their, um, you know, their um, sort of their ADLs, um, then then maybe more aggressive treatment makes sense. If you're sort of in between where you do need some assistance with sort of higher levels of, of your activities of daily living, then maybe you can, you have a sort of a, a shared decision about what your intensity of treatment threshold is for blood pressure. And then those who are very frail, who have no independent living ability, then that's a situation where you either have a very um, um, high threshold for treatment or you de-escalate treatment. So it's sort of the first time if, uh, that I have seen where you don't have a specific target just because of your age, but you consider you know, these other variables to make decisions about what your blood pressure target should be mm-hmm. um, based on these uh, in, within the context of somebody's overall health status, which is sort of like this patient. So if this guy's active, plays golf every day and has no physical limitation, um, once you establish that his longevity is not significantly impacted by the colon cancer, then I would probably be more aggressive and try to treat his blood pressure below that target of 130 over 80. Gotcha. Okay. So his blood pressure is 146 over 92, and we're gonna dive a little bit into some specific point here about like whether he should be started on the medications he should be started on. Because there's a point in the guidelines um, where they recommend starting a person on two agents if they're above a target of, if they are uh, 20, uh, 20 millimeters of mercury above their systolic target or 10 millimeters of mercury above their diastolic target. And so he is 
12 millimeters above his diastolic target and he's 16 millimeters over his systolic target, you know, is this something where you would immediately jump to starting two agents on for this person? Yeah, so this is, a, um, I think, a good um, example of sort of, um, sort of individual sort of choices about what to do. So if you follow the guidelines to the T, then you, know, you might argue that using uh, combination therapy um, would get this patient's diastolic blood pressure more likely to target easier um, because he's more than 10 millimeters above that systolic, uh, diastolic blood pressure threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the other factors to consider are age, you know, the, the, even the SPRINT trial, uh, which was a study of, of hypertensive patients in the United States, um, they loosened their requirements for initiation of combination therapy or even triple therapy if patients were above 75. So they, in that case, recommended monotherapy initially because of concerns about potential side effects of more of, of, of aggressive intervention up front. Mm-hmm. This guy's not 75, but he's 68. And his blood pressures are not really substantially above this 20 over 10 millimeters of mercury. Mm-hmm. So even though it would be not unreasonable to do that, I tend to be a little bit more conservative. Mm-hmm. And so for this patient, I would probably start him on monotherapy and then monitor his blood pressures over the course of a month to see what kind of response he has to treatment and then titrate it up to try to achieve that sort of less than 130 over 80 target. But would it be unreasonable to take the more aggressive stance? It's it's reasonable. And the, the rationale for using combination therapies up front comes from many clinical trials that have looked at intensification of monotherapy sort of in a stepwise fashion versus doing combination therapy up front. And many studies have shown that you are more likely to achieve blood pressure targets with initiation of low-dose combination therapy versus the stepwise monotherapy approach. Uh And so that's the basis for why some of the guidelines recommend this. The European Society of Cardiology guidelines recommend single pill combinations as a primary treatment for most patients except older patients. Hmm. Got it, okay, interesting stuff. Last question. So, a last case. So, we have Miss Roberts. Miss Miss Roberts. Uh, she's a 31-year-old woman, and she has biopsy-proven lupus nephritis. Her GFR is 40, and she's currently stable on mycophenolate um, for her lupus nephritis. What should her blood pressure goals be? Young patient, lupus nephritis, uh, st- uh, stage three CKD. Yeah. So this, you know, is a an example of again. Um, I think. Um, a case where in the the ACC AHA guidelines, they're pretty clear that if you have chronic kidney disease, uh, that the blood pressure target is, should be less than 130 over 80. And in fact, essentially, they apply that target to all patients, regardless of age or their disease state. So hmm. uh, with the exception of initiation of treatment um, for those who have a 10-year risk of less than 10%, right? Um, so in this case, at least based on the ACC AHA guidelines, her target blood pressure should be less than 130 over 80. I think the, um, and even the European guidelines also recommend a target of less than 130 over 80, but mm-hmm. there are, there are dis- differences of opinion in the diabetes guidelines, in the um, um, American Society of Nephrology guidelines. So there's a lack of consistency among the guidelines, which I think is a cause for confusion 
for not only the patients, but for providers themselves who are not sure about exactly what sort of guideline recommendations to follow. Mm. Uh, but if we were to use the cardiology guidelines, then the recommendation is that the, the threshold for treatment should be less than 130 over 80. I see. Okay, got it. Interesting stuff. Um, as kind of a wrap-up, or some we've talked about a lot of different um, bits and pieces of the of the updated guidelines from 2017. Um, I was a bit curious if you know any of the data on how we do on like a national level of treating hypertension. Um, how well are we at, at getting people to goal? Um, and has there been any updates uh, since these guidelines were published and how we're doing at a national level of achieving this new target for those patients? Uh, that's a great question. So, um, I mean, the positives are that over time, we have been doing a better job of getting patients' blood pressure controlled, at least below the threshold of 140 over 90. Um, part of it is that there, it depends upon how you look at sort of blood pressure control. So if you look at patients who are treated for hypertension, the rates for patients who were um, treated to get the, to the threshold of less than 140 over 90 was getting to the 60 to 70% range. But then if you just look at all hypertensive patients, even those untreated, so not on any medications, that level was probably around 50%. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, the problem is that now that you have changed this target to a threshold of less than 130 over 80, the percentage of patients who now have hypertension increased from 32 to 46% based on the updated guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, so now we have half the population who has high blood pressure. And then with this new threshold for many of them, um, the target is lower. So our control rates are certainly going to be less. Mm -hmm. And the sort of the reviews indicate that the control rates are probably now 50 or 60% or 50% instead of 70% if you apply this new threshold. And even lower if you look at all comers, right? So gotcha. irrespective of treatment. So. I don't think I have seen, so that data takes time to accumulate, right? Uh -huh. So, you know, there hasn't been sort of an updated survey of blood pressure, um, like for example, from NHANE. So we don't know. I think one of the things that I have heard from talking to some of those who were involved in making the guidelines from the NH NHLBI is that, you know, even if we don't have a lot of success in getting more people to less than 130 over 80, just the fact that there's heightened sensitivity to these new thresholds means that we'll probably get a lot more people, hopefully, to below 140 over 90. So uh -huh. at a population sort of health sort of level, that will have significant impact in terms of sort of intermediate and long-term cardiovascular events if we can just get a higher proportion of people below that 140 over 90 threshold. So I haven't seen any data that has looked at the impact of this in the last two years of how that's changed in terms of um, those uh, thresholds. I'm sure there's small studies that have probably looked at this, but there's no population level studies that I have seen that sort of has examined the impact of this sort of at the national level. Gotcha, okay. Um, and then maybe my last question is, I was, I was just really struck about how the ASCBD risk score seems to be creeping its way into like, into all these different guidelines. And I was wondering about uh, if you could comment on um, the data behind how that uh, equation uh, then got incorporated into these guidelines for hypertension. Right. I mean, I think there's been some um, desire to have some common 
risk calculator to guide decision making um, based on calculated risk, meaning that as we as I alluded to earlier, that if your risk is on the lower side, like less than 10%, then you're not sort of in a high risk category where maybe initiation of of intense treatment is going to have a meaningful impact in terms of of attenuating that risk over time. Um, and so similarly, the lipid guidelines, the intensity of treatment is based on risk, right? So if you're seven and a half to nineteen point nine percent, the recommended reduction in your um, cholesterol is a little bit um, less aggressive than if you're in the high risk of over twenty percent. Hmm. And that's because if you look at the impact of the amount of cholesterol lowering that has a direct impact on let's say five or ten year risk of events and so when you're in a lower risk category to achieve sort of a similar risk reduction does not require the same intensity of treatment does that make sense yes so the same thing applies to blood pressure so again if you're high risk then aggressive intervention for blood pressure makes sense mm -hmm. um, but if your risk is low or lower, then the level of aggressiveness of treatment is also not gonna have the same clinical impact in terms of modifying that risk if you're in a lower risk category versus a high risk category of above 10%. So it's really to use that as a way to guide aggressiveness or intensity of treatment relative to your, your sort of intermediate sort of risk of 10 years. Gotcha, okay. Well, we've had just like an absolutely fascinating discussion uh, about these topics. Um, we're really getting into some of these nitty gritty of the guidelines. Uh, do you have any like last little pearls or, or tricks for helping other people like navigate through these guidelines or resources that are available for internists, uh, primary care physicians, residents, et cetera? Yeah, so I mean, most of these guidelines, as you know, are available um, through the acc.org website. And so they're downloadable um, apps that allow you to use um, the uh, your smartphone to calculate their risk based on their their numbers. So that's one easy thing to do, which I recommend. Some of the applications are less um, um, user friendly. So, for example, the statin intolerant uh, intolerance app I find to be a little bit cumbersome. But the ASCVD Risk uh, Estimator Plus that's available um, is, is not that difficult to use from your smartphone. Mm -hmm. Other things are now our EHRs are incorporating these tools in, in the electronic health record. So, for example, you know, we recently created a hypertension pathway that I was involved in um, um, creating for our institution. And so there are now sort of smart texts that you can use that will guide you through sort of the guidelines about what pharmacotherapy to initiate um, and how to, and then you can calculate their 10-year ASCVD risk within within the electronic health, health record. So there are ways of making it easier for people to um, use these guidelines uh, and use that as a framework to decide on treatment and, uh, and for risk estimation. Gotcha. I like that. It's making the EMR a tool for us rather than us a tool for the EMR. So I like it. You got to start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Once again, thanks for your time. Uh, thank you for allowing me to speak today. To summarize a few of the key take-home points from this episode is that the updated guidelines on hypertension in 2017 from the ACC AHA uh, target a blood pressure goal of 130 over 80 for those patients with elevated cardiovascular risk. And that risk is 
uh, evaluated by the pooled cohort equation or the ASCBD risk score. Patients with diabetes or chronic kidney disease are automatically placed in this high-risk category and should have that target of 130 over 80. We discussed the use of lifestyle modifications in order to reduce blood pressure and how to incorporate someone's life expectancy into your clinical decision-making in your blood pressure targets. One of the apps that Dr. Yang alluded to that you can get on your phone is the ACC Clinical Guidelines app. And from there, you can access resources on the blood pressure guidelines and an ASCVD risk calculator. The app is available for both Android and Apple devices. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for listening. This episode is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on medpagetoday.com. This episode is also sponsored in part by ThinkLabs, the creators of, a, of the ThinkLabs One digital stethoscope. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song Night Owl on their album Directionless EP I've used for my theme music. Thank you.